Hi, my name's Ian Beaton. You're about to listen to everyday people from differing backgrounds, but with one thing in common, a story. A story of adversity, a story of inspiration, a story of laughter, sometimes a story of sadness, or simply a story to make you think. I believe everyone has a story. I also believe that story should be shared. Welcome to So What's Your Story? So, welcome to this week's episode of So What's Your Story? In the studio today, I've got Cameron Johnston. And Cameron is a former professional rugby player. Um, But actually... He is the founder of Rixo, which is the world's first sports injury recovery cuff. Now, you may be thinking, okay, that sounds interesting, but here's the facts. It's a wearable compression sleeve that through the use of heat or ice speeds up muscle recovery in sports injury, as well as aiding soft tissue recovery in injuries as well. It's the first of its kind in the world. It was originally developed through Cameron's background in the military. Since then, it's been used by the British Athletics team, Manchester United Football Club, the British Triathlon team, Newcastle United Football Club, the British Cycling team, and more and more usage and and clients around the world. As I mentioned, Cameron is actually a former professional rugby player, but he's also a chartered physiotherapist, and he served in the British Army for eight years. However, Cameron suffered a horrific injury whilst playing rugby, which he's going to tell us more about, and also had challenges with his mental health along the way as well. Um, He currently lives in Edinburgh and he has a beautiful daughter. So um, Cameron, welcome to So Watch His Story. Um, I hope the the sort of um, uh, introduction uh, was was, was accurate and and did you justice there. Where should we start, you know, because I'm, I'm interested in this early, early part of your life, growing up, becoming a professional sportsman. Can, can we sort of go back to, in the journey and then, and then we'll evolve the story to where we are today with, with Rixo and everything else that's going on? Yeah, of course. And, and thanks for having me, Ian. It's an absolute privilege and an honour to, to be here. Um, but it's always interesting when you hear, yeah, the... I love hearing people's stories as you do and telling them, but equally sitting on this side of, of the desk... Um, it doesn't feel like a worthwhile story. It's it's just my life, and you kind of <laughs> you ride the waves, you take the hits, you keep moving forward, and um, you sort of build from it. But yeah, more than happy, and yeah, we can start way back many moons ago when I was a, a little nipper. Um, so, I, as you mentioned, I hail from Edinburgh, and that's where I'd say the story really begins, and where my life began. Um, went to school there, and. During my time at school, I just, I had a a love and a passion for rugby. I mean, I think I was born with a rugby ball in my hand when I was a kid. And so mm. that's where I just really found my passion and drive. I was fortunate enough that I got picked up and had some skills and started playing some representative stuff at school. Um, and that's wow. really where it all began. What position were you playing? Winger, fullback. So I think yeah. when I played mini rugby uh, or Colts or juniors, um, I was a little chunker, so I started as a hooker, and then I gradually moved my way out as I had went through the growth spurts of puberty, <laughs> <laughs> and then find myself on the wing. Um, and I, yeah, I, I did some junior national um, sprinting, like athletics. So I did a hundred meters, and I think I clocked a PB of ten point eight seconds for the the hundred. Whoa! Um, but really? I, I didn't really enjoy athletics. I remember. I was at Grangemouth Athletics Track, which is a, a one in Scotland, and it was uh, the Scottish school's final or something. And typical to Scottish summers, it was raining, and uh, I'd got to the final of the 100 metres. So you do all the sort of heats and things on the Saturday, and then the Sunday was the final. And the 100 metres is always the last event, the 100 metre final before the relays. Yep. And so you wait around for four, five, six hours. Went down to the start line, set my blocks up, gun went off. My block slipped and there's no way in a hundred meter sprint you can recover from that. And I just kind of I'd had enough of it. Um, and that's where I jumped into rugby and I always had a love for it, but I really grew into it. I think strangely, it was a coping mechanism. My parents were going through a divorce and I think that um, that ability to 
the channeled aggression <laughs> of a teenage boy yeah. Uh, yeah. was phenomenal. Plus, you've always got that immediate camaraderie of 20-odd other people around you, father figure yeah. and a coach, and it, I just really, really got into it. Um, and then did some of the, I was in the Scotland under-18s, Scotland under-19s at school, and that's when you start to realise, actually, there's something here, and that's where it, I can, I want to take my life. So at, at, at that point, were you, were you thinking, to yourself, you, you just touched on it there, you know, you, you start to recognise something, because I'm imagining that when you're going at that level, you know, it's highly competitive. Um, so you have to recognise your own ability that you are capable of taking it to the next level. How did that occur to you in your mind, Cameron? Was, was, it, was, it, was it like a, a light bulb moment or was it just, just along the journey? Um, I don't think it ever did, if I'm being totally honest. Ian. I always suffer from imposter syndrome. Um, so I can remember I'm, I got into, how old would I have been? 17, 18, into the Scotland Sevens team. Um, and then I started, okay. I was fortunate, I played for the GB Sevens team. And this was pre-Olympics. Um, so it would have been yeah, a while ago now. But we worked a lot with a psychologist, and I did specifically. And mine came from um, the imposter side. And I'd get so nervous the day before. And it was purely because I was a kid, and I didn't recognize my own worth particularly. But more importantly, I'd be watching people that I watched on TV, and suddenly they're standing opposite me. Or, and it, it's that sort of... Yeah, processing it mentally and how to use nerves as a good thing um, as opposed to when it gets too far. So I can remember I used to be national anthems. I'd be holding back the urge to be sick um, and you're trying wow. not to. And, and so it was learning how to, how to channel that, how to reflect on performance, good and bad. Um, but you're yeah. totally right. It's, um, you're an asset, you're an, an, a commodity and you're a number, although you are there and you've earned it, you know there's three people behind you that are nipping at your heels. Um, and so you do, there is a lot of pressure, but at the same time, I mean, it was phenomenal. I was, I can remember being um, at university doing my first degree and I signed into Newcastle Falcons. I was in their, um, their academy setup at university, but I was playing Scotland under 21s and Scotland 7s. And so when it, when I talk about this, it's bizarre because you always think, how on earth could you manage? Uh, like me thinking it personally. I'd wake up in the morning, 6 a.m., go to the Kingston Park, do skill session, gym session, go to university lectures, get on a train up to Edinburgh for Scotland training, then get the last train back down. And I was doing that for about three years on off. Um, and it was full on, but you'd, it was just that... As I say, you react to it and it's the time management and just you have a goal and a drive to do something you love. And ultimately, end of the day, my job at the time was to kick a ball about with my mates. <laughs> so, <laughs> so who doesn't love doing that? Yeah. And something's just occurred to me, Cameron. You and I, we're in a virtual studio right now, so I'm seeing you on camera. But I can see the width of your shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> And you, you are, you, you know, you're not standing up. I can just see the head and just the, the, the top half of your body, top, top portion of your body. But you got shoulders, man, that are like, yeah, wow. Yeah. I would not, I would not fancy them launching into me at speed. Well, I think the, um, one of the reasons I was so fast on the rugby pitch was I had the same mentality. I was worried about the guy who was chasing me. So I, I, <laughs> I'm still considered small. And uh, to be honest, what you're not seeing is the stomach under the table, so that's fine. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but it wasn't like that when you were younger, right? Yeah. That's what we all tell ourselves. That's what we all tell ourselves. So, okay, so you're you're playing at professional level. You're playing at a high level. Okay, the the intensity you've just described that. You know your your own personal training regime. You know, but 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 it becomes, you know, it, it becomes not not a chore because this is your passion, right? This is what you do. This is this is what's necessary to stay at that level. Because as you also highlight, there's people nipping at your heels that, that want to take your position in the team. Then something tragic happened, didn't it? Uh, I had a bad day at the office um, and during a match I sustained a fracture of my spine um, when I was spear tackled off the ball. So I was picked up and... and what's, a, what's a spear tackle? Uh, so this was somebody picks you up um, off the ground 
<laughs> those that can't see in the camera, I'm mirroring the movements <laughs> for the, yeah, they, you are, they, you are. they pick you well, up. Yeah, those that can't see the camera, he's mirroring now being picked up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're running forward, opposite man picks you up um, and then turns you upside down and you land on your neck. So I've got a picture of the moment that I hit the deck and I look like the Isle of Man flag with my legs up in the air. Um, wow. And it was the impact of the ground with him on top um, and it crushed the vertebrae T8, so it crushed the vertebrae in the middle of my back. What are you thinking at that moment when you, when, when, because obviously, you know, people talk about like when they're in, in an accident, whether it be a car accident or, or any other type of accident. And I've had this myself. It sort of feels like um, everything goes in slow motion. You know, it feels like that moment is lasting for an enormous amount of time, but actually it's not. It's a flash, right? Did, did you have that sensation that things slowed down when it hap- as it was happening? And how did it feel when you're on the deck? The way it happened with me, so being on the wing, one of the players inside, further in the pitch, threw a big looping pass out to me on the wing, um, and I caught it, but the pass was forward. And if the pass is forward in rugby... Um, yep. Stop play, um, and it goes to the other yep. side. It's a it's a fault, foul. So anyway, this happened right with the whistle, um, which I heard. So I started slowing down because play had essentially stopped, and so I wasn't expecting to be hit. And this is where I think when you run back the scenario, if I just kept running full tilt, um, we would have clattered into each other and it'd be fine. But I'd sort of relaxed and wasn't expecting it, whether or not the other man heard the the whistle. So when I went up. I can still feel it in my head. There's that feeling of what on earth are you doing? Um, and then I could feel myself getting turned upside down. And the, like you say, it was like I was running in midair. I can remember what my legs were like and then hitting the deck. But in all honesty, when I hit the deck, um, I just thought I was winded. So that feeling where it's like, oof, wind knocked out of you. So I tried to get up. Fortunately, you can see from the video footage, before I'd hit the deck, the dock and the physio on the touchline were already like, they were taking a beeline for the pitch and they pinned me to the ground, which is the practice when there's a suspected spinal injury is to minimize movement. But for me, I, it was like lying on your, like lying on the ground on the kitchen surface or something with a tennis ball right in the middle of your back. So my Jeez. immediate urge was just to, I wanted to roll onto my side because I was of like, course, God, yeah. there's yeah. a rock under my back and it's mm. agony. Um, yeah, there was like tingling through my legs and, and bits and pieces. Um, but I think the ambulance did take about half an hour or so to arrive, but that moment felt like 30 seconds to me. So the commotion, everything going on, it just felt like it went by in a heartbeat and the ambulance was there, but they were saying the ambulance Saturday afternoons, um, yeah, that's when all the sports injuries happen. So they're always busy. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah so yeah. I was there for yeah. an absolute age. And then the next thing was just a big morphine induced blur for the following three months. So you went through a stage of recovery, obviously, and, and, and you, you, you got back able bodied. You know, when, when was there a point? When, when was the point where, well, I'm making a presumption here, could you have gone back to rugby? Yeah. And so the, the time in hospital that I was in, I was in for about a month or so, and I, I they were going to do surgery, but it left me with a 30% chance of not walking out of it. And so I said no, um, and was instead I was in like a big cage metal frame around for nine months, um, and so did that. And I just was absolutely meticulous with my rehab. Um, I was told I'd never play again, um, and so immediately... I said no. Uh, so I actually went back and played. Um, so I had a match for Newcastle Falcons Academy against Leicester Tigers. <laughs> wow. Um, but I can remember being on the blind side, so um, on one side of the pitch and made a break down the line. And Manu Tuolangi absolutely smashed me in a tackle. So he's an England centre and he's a massive unit. Um, he's a big yeah, unit. Yeah, and I just sort of made this, all right, I'm not, it wasn't so much the physicality, or the physical aspect of it, it was the mental aspect. I, I wasn't the same player that I was. Um, I was kicking or passing when I should have been running and not committing to tackles 100%. And there was always an, an element, a, a voice in the back of my head. And as soon as you have that, yeah. you're going to get injured and you're not going to play to your full capacity and ability. Uh, it's unfair on yeah. those around you. And so I decided to 
to stop. And then I ended up just playing social rugby. But that in itself has its problems. And I actually broke my leg and that's what caused me to stop playing. Uh, and it's because it, I was fit, but I wasn't rugby fit. So I had the ability to go for a run, go to the gym, but I wasn't doing the day in, day out training that's required for yeah, an impact based sport. Um, and so, um, yeah, I was playing in a social tennis tournament um, in Edinburgh with some mates that I knew, my brother and things like that. And you, yeah, typical story, first match, just got to try, made a break, and then someone bigger than me landed on me, <laughs> and I broke my leg, but it was a really bizarre break, because I didn't break the bone, and there's two bones in the lower part of the leg, and I split them apart, and so ended up a lot of pins in and stuff, and that's when I was like, Oof, uh, okay, I should probably stop, but... If any of the Scotland coaches are listening, I've still got my boots under the bed, just in case. <laughs> Good on you, Cameron. Nice positive, positive attitude there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and, and again, for, for people who, who, who are listening to this on audio, as Cameron was describing that break there, I was pulling the most bizarre expression on my face, one of like, ah, you know, pure uh, pain and, and um, uh, sympathy with that, with that there. So... Let's we we could talk about this for quite some time, but there is a there's a there's a big story here to tell. So, and I'm conscious that um, you know we have a limited amount of time to tell the story. So, what happened then? There was a gear shift, was there? You 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 became a, a qualified physiotherapist, right? Yeah. So I um whilst I was in hospital or in that hospital for that year, I finished my degree. Actually, I had to do part of my dissertation whilst I was still in hospital. So I did. A, I was doing a sports science degree. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful I did it. I think at the time there was an element of uh, naivety in that for me, rugby was going to last forever. Um, but it was part of my yeah. contract to do a degree as it is with most. Um, and so I had that, but then came out and was like, okay, what do I do now? Um, and the options that were sort of there, I wasn't openly keen on. So I was like, I'm going to go back to university. So I originally looked at, um, doing economics or becoming a surveyor or something. Cause a lot of my friends were, but it was right at the peak of that massive recession that we had yeah. um, in 2007, 2008. And so I ended up not doing that. And yeah, I studied, became a physiotherapist. Um, if you can't beat them, join them. And so I qualified, <laughs> worked a few years in the NHS, um, and then I joined the, the British Army. And in fact, the reason why I was, it took me three years to get into the Army um, because I'd had a spinal fracture and actually something I totally forgot about. I had heart surgery when I was 16. <laughs> so, um, what? yeah, I, I don't know. I always forget about it because it was so long ago. Um, I, I had a, a condition called Wolf Parkinson white syndrome, which under extreme stress would put my heart into a single heartbeat, um, as opposed to the double. And then I'd end up keeling over, but it happened on the rugby pitch. So it was always difficult to capture because it was normally be, some big mutant would hit me or in a tackle and then it would trigger it. Um, so I had to have, at the time I was, I was signing and, and starting to progress, but I wouldn't have been covered by any insurance company. And so, yeah, I got that surgery done um, in Glasgow and it was fine. But um, yeah, so it took me three years to get into the army, but I just, I think after losing rugby or having to retire from rugby early, the big thing I missed from my life was that immediate camaraderie that I spoke about. Yeah. Like it didn't, and I've spoke to my brother and other friends who are retiring from professional sport and other things. And they say it's, it is a great one because it doesn't matter where you are or what you do. If you've got a sport, a team sport, rugby or anything, you just join a local club and immediately you've got people mm. around you. Um, and so I was always craving that. And then um, I did the officer cadets when I was in university and then decided to join. Um, so it took me a while to get in. But I was just so determined to get in because I knew if I'm going to make a go at being a physio, that's what I want to do. I want to do it to a level that I felt was above what would be normal. And um, yeah, I got in and had a yeah great career, had eight years with, with the British Army. And let's talk about that because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, something I'm, I'm going to say this, Cameron, because when you, when you first came on a short while ago onto um, 
this recording session, you said, oh, yeah, like my story is just a... No, it isn't, right? What, I, what I'm hearing here is, is this is an incredible story because we've had, so far in, in this episode, we've had a heart attack, we've had a broken spine, we've had a broken leg, we've had a, through uh, extreme adversity, we've had uh, dogged determination. Oh, yeah, let's throw in there uh, a parent separating as well. So, um, uh, uh, boy, oh, boy, I mean, we're, we're, we're only 20 minutes into this session and, and I'm hearing an, an incredible story from an incredible individual. But let's, let's, let's think about the, the army then uh, because you served eight years um, and, and you were doing what you wanted to do within the army because you felt that you were going to see more um, uh, cases that would perhaps, you know, test your skill sets. Where did you serve and, and what type of things were you uh, faced with? Yeah, so when I, I joined in 2014, um, I did uh, the training at Sandhurst, which was great. Um, you just get to be a kid and run around being a soldier. <laughs> um, and then I my first posting was three years at the Royal Centre for Defence Medicine, which is the big uh, hospital in Birmingham, the, the Queen Elizabeth um, Hospital. Um, and that's where I worked on um, the ward for major trauma, intensive care, uh, burns. And so, I mean, what would typically happen with when Afghan was still going was um, if soldiers were injured in Afghanistan, the serious injuries, they'd be stabilized in theater. Um, and then they have these big aircraft that are converted into flying intensive care units. And so they would get stabilized, put on these aircraft, flown over, um, and then blue lighted into Birmingham, where there'd be a large military and civilian team who would then do the surgery and they'd have a better level of care. Um, and so within the hospital, I mean, it's absolutely ginormous, but there's about three, 400 military personnel. And so we work alongside the NHS in that role. And uh, so on the major trauma ward, we'd have military personnel mixed in with um, civilian personnel who'd had uh-huh. bad car accidents, you name it, there'd be, I can always remember one story that it was a young lad who had a wrecking ball fall on him on a demolition site. So, yeah, I know. So when you've got that wealth of experience that comes out of military and, and wartime um, med care, um, yeah, it works. And so after that, um, I posted to 16 Medical Regiment, which was down with the Paras are based in Colchester. Um, so down there, there's the two Para Regiments and a, a couple of Special Forces. Um, and it was that was really, for me, I wanted a really active role with, with the medical side because you're, a lot of the time you're clinical and you're in a hospital and stuff you don't get much of the, what we call the green stuff. So, but when that was my biggest opportunity to do it and it was great, I mean, it was really hard work, um, but it was great. And deployed on operations um, out into South Sudan. Uh, we did a, a UN mission um, for some peacekeeping work out there. Um, so that was when I was with, based in Colchester. Um, and then I did three in a bit years up in uh, Edinburgh. Um, but that was more to do with, they so a second in command for the delivery of rehab for Army, Navy, and RAF in Scotland. So a lot of it was making sure that that delivery of care was there for, the, I think there's about 11,000, 12,000 um, troops stationed in Scotland. Um, and it was during COVID as well. So we ended up doing a lot of work in and around the emergency care, the emergency hospitals, and, and all sorts. So, yeah, quite a diverse career, certainly, as as a physio, to be fair. I mean, yeah, I, I, I just trying to sort of process that, just seeing and, and dealing with all of those instances, both, both familiar, both civilian and uh, military, um, must have at times been quite overwhelming. Um, yeah, so the hardest one, to be fair, was um, a chap I worked with who was a civilian. And this one hit me really hard and it led me to buy... My Land Rover Defender, I'll explain why there's the positive that came out of it, but he was 36-year-old mechanic, father of two, um, went to hospital with a sore throat, went to the dock with a sore throat, um, needed antibiotics. Unbeknownst to him, he was allergic to that strain of antibiotics. Um, And within, I think it was 11 days, he was a triple amputee fighting for his life. 
Um, and so I worked, I was at the time on intensive care. And then as he moved wards by chance, I ended up moving with him. But being military, um, yeah, being similar in age, male, we like struck off a bond. But one of the things was he always wanted me to be there when they were delivering bad news, which, which was fine, like more than happy. But God, the, the toll it took on me as well. And I can remember him saying, he was like, you just don't know what's around the corner. And at the time I'd been humming and awing. I wanted an old banger of a Land Rover Defender, but oh, it's not this, it's not fuel efficient, it's not that. And then after that conversation, I just went home, sold the car I had, bought an old banger Land Rover Defender because I was like, <laughs> yeah, you don't know what's around the corner. Um, no. But yeah, there's moments like that where, yeah, it's... It puts things in perspective, but it, it tests you also. Um, and it, it does, mm. I think over the years, I've become more mature and the ability to reflect on situations and scenarios. But certainly as as a young guy in, at that time, there's certain things you don't get prepared for. Um, mm. And you have to sort of learn to cope and learn the strategies. And I didn't get it right. Um, as we'll probably talk about later on, I had suicide attempts and things. Um, but that was just from my own pigged pig-headed ignorance and inability to ask for help. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, maybe maybe it's time that we we talk about that. Because, you know, I've had on, on this um, podcast one of the founders of um, Mentel, which is a men's mental health charity. And one of the blue campaign, the blue campaign that they run uh, throughout the year uh, quite simply says... Is it time to talk? The, the key, and certainly speaking firsthand here, when, when I had my challenges with my mental health, um, is to learn to talk about it. And for whatever reason, a lot of men keep that bottled up and don't know, perhaps don't want to talk about it or, or equally don't know where to go to talk about it. You know, we might have people around us who will pat us on the back and say, oh, come on, shake yourself down, you'll be okay. You know, man up. You know, all of these things, which are which are not great to be to be told when you're in, not in a right headspace. But what what happened with you then, Cameron? Where where was this in your life, and 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 are you able to just share with us, you know, how how it felt, how bad it felt, and where what was the actual worst point of that? Uh, yeah. So um, I. So I completely agree with you on the point of we we don't we don't talk about it. And I was recently speaking to I've got three really close mates, and we were talking about it because we lost touch. I think I could show you now. I've got six hundred and eighty unread messages on my phone because for five years I switched off from everyone and totally isolated wow. myself. Um, wow. And we were we were just discussing this because another one of the my closest mates had the similar mental health things, and I think with from my perspective and my experience is I'd always grown up in a relatively, what's the best thing? Like an alpha environment, like rugby, professional sport, military. Yep. And there's an expectation yep. that you can, you can take it. And there's a belief in myself that I can manage this. And so it's a bit like, um, having a, a one of those flat Lego trays in front of you, empty, and then a block gets mm. put on it. That's your job, and another block, and another block. And it's it doesn't all come on at once, but over time, that block of Lego bit bricks just builds and builds and builds, and you get to a point where it becomes way too much. And I think the way that what happened to me was I, I can deal with this, I can deal with this, I can deal with this, up to the point where I couldn't, but I was beyond asking for help, or so I felt. Yep. And I was in a, I was trapped in a loveless, toxic relationship. Um, Rixo was in its infancy. I mean, after a few years, I'd sunk my house, my car, um, saving everything into this. It was just that. And I was then, the way the work was with the army, it was really overbearing. There was a number of people had left. So I was, I was balancing working, acting, OC jobs, so acting like managerial roles for other departments on top of my primary yeah. role, on top of financial difficulty, on top of a number of things. And then I can remember coming home, my daughter was born 18th of December, 2018. Uh, the 20th of December, the boiler blew up. So now on Christmas Eve, I'm trying to find a plumber who can fit a boiler 
I'm trying to find five grand to pay for it. I've got a newborn baby in a tiny, I was in a flat with a partner who we didn't want to be together or there was stuff grumbling in the background. But, um, and I can just remember, honestly, couldn't tell you how it happened. I, uh, four in the morning, find myself on a hillside with a bottle of whiskey and as many sleeping tablets and opioid tablets that I could. That was the other thing. I was in absolute crippling chronic pain from the spinal fracture. And then it also turns out I had a shoulder tear and a hip tear. Um, And so I was early 30s and pretty much walking with a stick. Um, To give you an idea, I was chronically overweight. I was about 130 kilos, so sort of 15 stone. Um, um, that wasn't, there was no muscle mass on it. And it was just this realization of how it wasn't, I wasn't angry at the world and I didn't blame anyone. I just hated myself. Like, yeah. how can you be what you were and be what you are now? And it's just like, yeah, one second. It's okay. Cameron, do you want to? Should we, should we just press pause or are you okay to keep going? No, I'm fine. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I remember, and then I remember sitting at the top of the hill, the sun comes up and I was like, God, my parents split. And so my father moved to Australia. I have a young daughter. I can't, I need to do something about this. And I ended up actually, it came in a bizarre, bizarre way. I was sat in Norfolk having a pint with a mate of mine and he was... An infantier, uh, infantry officer, so cannon fodder. <laughs> and the, but he'd done some work at Hereford with the SES and he'd done Iraq and Afghanistan and stuff and we were just having a pint. And then he just openly talked about mental health. And you, but I think because I held him in such high regard and he was so cavalier about it. Oh God, yeah, this happened and I was so done. And so I did this and I built this up and I got myself back to where I was, but I was in a really dark place. And I was just in a pub in Norfolk, just broke down in tears. I was like, mate, I'm struggling. And he just turned around and said, stop being an idiot, go and get help. And I did. And it was the best thing I ever did. I mean, it was the darkest, darkest point of my life but easily the best thing I did. And it's one of these things I talk so openly about it because it, like, so I viewed it like breaking my leg when I was going through it. And this is how I approached it in my head when I was speaking to the psychologist and and when I was getting the help is that this isn't a stigma that's going to sit on my back like a big gorilla. This is something that I can overcome. This is something where I'm going through it, but it's no different than breaking my leg. And even with breaking my leg or breaking my back, yeah, it niggles me now and then, and I get a bit of pain and I have to be careful about certain things. It's exactly the same with the mental health. And the it's just it was just trying to reframe it and approach it. And I think from, there's a really good book, David Goggins has a book called, um, is it Can't Hurt Me? Um, and he talks about owning stuff. And I think, I hadn't read the book at the time, but in reflection, I, I sort of took that mentality where if I just own it, it's not an issue. So if I'm in a conversation with someone and I say, I don't know, it was, I think it was off work at the time with, with mental health. And instead of just saying, oh yeah, I'm off work because I've, I've, I've got some stuff going on. I just turned around and said, I'm in a really bad place with mental health um, and I'm off work until I get myself sorted. By owning it, people are more open to talk about it, but equally they're more open to talk about stuff they're going through. And I think it was partly for my own recovery and that just embracing it, um, as well as just trying to break down the stigma. Um, and there's been incidents since where, yeah, I've bottomed out um, and things have happened, but you, yeah, I think realizing I'm not special and what happens to me has happened to somebody before me and what happened to somebody after me and accepting that and embracing that there is the ability to speak and when you scratch the surface of other people's lives there's other things going on and I always remember I was I met a mate for a pint in London and I think I was coming out the tail end of it and we're in Parsons Green outside, sun shining. And my mate turned around and he was, because I was like, God, everyone looks so happy and so successful down here. And he just turned to me and he was like, I can guarantee half of these people will be on antidepressants. Half of them will be chronically in debt. 
Um, all of this stuff you see is just the London bravado. Um, nobody is truly happy down here. And he was just being a morbidly pessimistic jock in London. <laughs> but he had a point. And I think that's where I was like, yeah, it's, it's okay to not be okay. And it, it doesn't yeah. define who I am. Thank you for sharing that, Cameron. And, 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 and I, I would echo exactly what you said. You know, f- for me, you know, it, is, it, 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 was a, it was a real scary moment in my life. And, and uh, th- those who know my story, uh, which I will share in full um, one day uh, for those who don't know this story. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I've been at the point where, where Cameron was too. And for me, it was... It was, it was it, <sighs> It's very hard to describe and, and, and people, you know, my heart goes out to anybody who's lost anybody to suicide because one of the things that, that they continuously ask themselves is, well, why did they do it? Why, why didn't they say something? Why didn't they talk to me first? And, you know, I, I think when, when you're getting to that point of, of, of that, 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 that process, um, there's, there's, it's hard to articulate for the person in the moment, what's going through their mind. Um, but I am glad that that it wasn't, uh, um, can we say successful? I don't know whether we should, but I'm glad that you're still with us, Cameron. And and, and certainly I would I would echo the, the sentiment there that any men listening to this right now, or females, and if you're in a, a difficult headspace and you're you're challenged by your thoughts. Um, which may be negative, which may be overwhelming for you right now. Find somebody who you trust, who's not going to judge you, who you can confide in. Um, and and um, if that be close friends, family, reach out to them and just say to them and just be transparent and just explain to them how you're feeling. Because when we talk, we lighten the load, okay? When we, when we share, we lighten the load. And whilst this episode isn't about uh, just talking about mental health, it's very pertinent that we should bring this up because it is uh, Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, I think, you know, if you don't have friends or family or or close ones nearby, your work colleagues or whatever that you you can share, seek professional help. There are organisations out there that will listen to you that will empathize and will understand you. Uh, sometimes when we're in these moments, we think, well, no one will understand or, or our ego gets in the way or whatever it might be. But just take that baggage off your shoulders for a second and just open up. So thank you very much for sharing that with us, Cameron. And I don't want this this episode to just be all about that because you did come out of that dark moment. And you, 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 as you mentioned, you were starting to, along the journey of Rixo, which is incredible. So let's 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 switch from that that share that you've just shared with us, and and, and is very very important. And I am sincerely sincerely um, uh, pleased that you're still with us, because what you've what you've managed to take into the world with Rixo <laughs> is incredible. But you're an incredible man as well. So I'm, I'm really pleased that you're with us. Um, Let's talk about Rixo then, because it was during your time in the military that you uh, felt or were challenged that there wasn't something that could help with injuries. Was it whilst you were in somewhere, somewhere was it somewhere hot? Was it Afghan or somewhere? Yes, that's it. Um, so we'd, um, we'd deployed in, as when I was in Colchester, um, and the there was a mission out into South Sudan with the UN. Uh, at the time, the country had been in civil war for... I think it was eight years at the time when we were out there. And so our mission was to deploy as the entry level up for the British contingent and build a field hospital. Um, And the field hospital would provide med cover for the 12,000 UN troops that were doing peacekeeping in the area. I think there was 140,000 refugees in the location where we were. Um, And so, yep, deployed out into... Uh, South Sudan, uh, built this field hospital and had all the medics. And out there, a lot of the injuries I was seeing were very akin and similar to a sports pitch. So a lot of ankles, knees, backs, shoulders. Um, But the water source we had was contaminated. And so we were on rationed water. It was just bottled water at the time. So we couldn't do, using the the basic fundamentals of ice, but what we did have were these big reefers, which are huge shipping containers that are refrigerated. 
and that's where we would store bloods and drugs and fluids and things. And so I was thinking, well, we could just put something in there um, because we had these amazing pieces of kit, like seven seven thousand pound pieces of kit for doing ice and recovery and rehab stuff. But it was just an expensive doorstop out there and 50 degree heat, um, everything breaks, there's sand everywhere, we had no water so, and the diesel generators kept cutting out. And so I was like, well, what can we put in there? So I started researching what we had available through the military uh, supply chain and there wasn't really anything, anything good enough. The closest I could get were those terrible burst in a bag ice packs that last about two minutes. <laughs> Um, and so I started then doing a bit of research, what was available in the wider civilian medical chain as, as far as consumable goods and consumer goods. And again, nothing existed. And I find there's this huge disparity in that you've got stuff that's been around for ages and hasn't been researched or the stuff that is, and it's the big, amazing pieces of kit that are worth thousands, but there's nothing in between. So between yeah. a bag of frozen peas and a seven grand piece of kit um and that's where i just started designing i mean i was just scribbling in a book yeah what would i want it to do i'd want it to be able to be yeah do ice do compression it needs to be hard wearing it needs to be able to be used multiple times what would that look like and so started with the ideas and then got back to the uk and uh, <laughs> I bought a kid's sewing machine for nine quid off of eBay. <laughs> I mean, it was like the size of a kettle. It was this tiny little thing. And I brought a load of materials, just all sorts of different things and gel packs and glue gun. And I was like, and that's when I kind of made this Frankenstein first proof of concept on can something like this work? Does something like this exist? And I've still got that original model. Um, That's and amazing. so I suddenly found, yeah, actually, this could work. And what then happened over five years was this absolutely epic journey of discovery on how to try and take something from proof of concept um, through to the product. And so did the first design iterations. It took years. I think the, the hardest part early on was nobody took me seriously. Um, yeah. And this is where, so professionally, manufacturers wouldn't take you seriously because you're an unknown entity. You're just another mad inventor with an idea. And so it took yep. a while in order to, and I've won some awards for the design, which got a little bit of money in and things. And then it, it started to sort of come through. But then equally, and friends and family were always, so I, my experience with friends and family is, out of no malice at all, will they'll dishearten you. But it's not because they're trying to stop you following your dream. It's because they want what's best for you. So as an yeah. example, for me to be like, yeah, so I've sold my car and I've cashed in my savings because I've got this idea about this thing and I'm really going to do it. Like the immediate alarm bells from close friends and family are like, whoa, like you've got a good job, you've got degree, you've, you're on this stable path. But... I was just like, there has to, I want more. There just kind of has to be more. And I'm not talking about monetary. I was like, I want to do something that I've, I've created that I'm passionate about that I can drive and deliver. Um, and so that's where it kind of started. And we launched originally with the, the calf cuff. So did the first designs and then my business partner joined and we did a refined design. Um, and what we developed was a, a compression sleeve that you pull on and it's got an inbuilt gel so it can be frozen or heated up. So it has applications for athlete recovery, um, for people that are running, um, any sport. Um, it helps reduce muscle soreness and, and the like. But then equally, if you're carrying an injury, um, it's perfect for applying ice and compression to an area in order to manage pain and swelling. And so, and the heat aspect as well is utilizing chronic rehab and recovery for tissue repair um, and there's also evidence coming out for the use and application of heat for sports recovery and heat um, for early stage injury recovery launched the calf cuffs on kickstarter sold out in 48 hours um on the oh, i wasn't kickstarter indiegogo launched uh, yeah in 48 hours 
um, and then did the second launch, got loads of data back from that. And very quickly it moved. If you take the calf, for example, the biggest challenge was the variation in human anatomy. So we went from four sizes to nine. <laughs> so if you think wow. you've got people like me who've got nice skinny aerodynamic calves, as I call them, <laughs> and then you get the cyclists who I, I refer to them as grapefruit calves, where it's that big ball of muscle in the middle. So, yeah. um, and since then we've got uh, ankle uh, is in development. We've got the calf ones, we've got knee. So you're looking at... If you've got arthritis or knee pain or your post-surgical ACL, um, post-surgical cartilage damage, anything around the pain of the knee, we've got one for the knee, quad and hamstring, uh, we've got the back and we're working on adapting it so it's back and abdomen. So, And then from there we've got shoulder, um, forearm and elbow, I'm developing two for amputees. Um, because I think it's just an area that's massively underdeveloped and under-researched. And I always say, if you chop my leg off, I'm still going to go for a run, and I'm still an athlete. Um, it's still a muscle group that needs to recover, and it's still an injury that needs to recover. Um, and yeah, it's just been this absolute roller coaster that is impossible to describe because it's exhilarating, demoralizing. <laughs> it's exciting it's boring it's like the range of emotions that you feel day to day but wouldn't change it for the world i think there's so there's there's examples of this throughout isn't there um you know where where, where somebody comes up with an idea and and then you know they 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 spend a lot of time a lot of development i, I two examples i'm going to throw these in here so ben francis uh the ceo of uh, gymshark uh his story he started in his mum's bedroom um you know living with his mum in one of the spare bedrooms little sewing machine makes a little gym top and puts this gymshark across the front of it that's how he started and he was then running to the post office posting these out, what he was selling online. And now, you know, they're eating away at Nike and, and, and everybody else as, as, a, as a gym brand and they're worth billions. Um, James Dyson. James Dyson spent um, multiple years devising the, the um, Dyson uh, vacuum cleaner. He had a vision that when people were cleaning their carpets, they wouldn't say, I'm going to hoover the carpet because that's actually a brand name, but we use the brand name as what we're doing. And he had this vision of, I want people to say, I'm going to Dyson my carpet. He went through 1,200 and something prototypes before he got to the point where it was it was able to take to market. And it was horrendous, the price point on it. It was something like $2,000 for a, for a Dyson machine. And... I have to ask you this question, Cameron. So there are two examples of brands which we know now, you know, we, we say Dyson, we know it. We say Gymshark, we know it. Okay, I hope that Rixo becomes one of those brands as well. And I'm, sure, and I'm pretty certain the way it's going, it probably will. But what would you say to a young or whatever age entrepreneur, which is what you are? Yeah, so I think there's a few things and this is what I'd, I'd often think about what I would say if I met myself um, I think the first one is um, is knowing your why so to quote Simon Sinek in his book which is amazing but it's understanding why you're doing it and I mean it can be as selfishly defined as you want it doesn't matter so the reason I'm doing it personally is for my four-year-old daughter <laughs> Like it's building a legacy and a, and a stability. Um, I have other personal goals um, as well. And then you have the business goals and understand what they are. So if you understand why you're doing what you're doing, um, then that is helps. The other thing is you have to take, you have to take the leap because otherwise some, someone else will do it and you'll always have that voice in the back of your head. So I, I love using metaphors and, and sort of descriptive stories on, on various things. And the two that I like, one's the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial leap. So if you imagine standing on a cliff um, and there's 99 people either side of you and there's a little ledge on the cliff you've got to jump over, but it's cloud cover. You can't see what's down there at all. And everyone's humming and eyeing. And then someone behind you just says everything will be okay. 
and you're the one who takes the jump, that leap, just knowing that everything will be okay. And it's sometimes just understanding that you've got to take the leap and you've got to make that move. Otherwise, you'll never fully realize your potential or understand what you're doing um, or what you can do. The other one is, um, I'm not a surfer, but I've got mates who are. And I remember having a conversation with a mate of mine who was a surfer. And I was just saying, look, like the whole, this whole thing is exactly like surfing. And so I was saying that if you imagine standing on the beach where you're bored, so your board's your idea, and you're looking out at that vast ocean of the world, and you think, right, I'm going to do it. So you sprint into the water head first where you're bored, and you get battered around by the surf, and the waves are just hammering you left and right, and you don't know which way is up. Um, but you suddenly pop out of it on the other side, and you're in the ocean. You kind of bob around in the ocean, just waiting and paddling to keep afloat. And then all of a sudden, three waves come along at once. And you've got to get yourself in the right position to catch one of those waves and ride it. And it's exactly what it, it's like. You sort of jump into this with an idea, not knowing anything, and you batter your way around and you pop out the other side. And then you just look for opportunities and put yourself in the position and you learn from it and you paddle to stay afloat. Um, I can remember having no money, but I needed legal advice and accounting advice. And what I discovered is a lot of law firms and or local law firms and accountancy firms offer you a free hour consultation and to, to get business. So I booked a load of free hour consultations, but we'd go in with a preset list of questions. And so I would go in and that's how I, for the start, how I got my legal advice and my accounting advice. And in fact, the lawyers that we use today, um, the chap, the director chap who I was speaking to recognized what I was doing and then just said, look, we'll work with you. Um, and then they now get all the repeat business and everything that comes with that. Um, but it is, it's just, and I think that then leads into my third point, which is you sometimes have to think laterally. Um, the, you just have to find a way and a means and like the prototypes that I used to do, I mean, the things I used to do in order to appear bigger, like having multiple email addresses that ultimately all came back to me but had different signature blocks to give the impression of we're bigger than we are so companies would take me serious because when you get the foot in the door, then you can have the conversation. And, and that's where it's utilizing the power of a network. If somebody doesn't know how to help or can't help, ask them if they know someone and you just build it that way. Um, because it was interesting, we um, when the GB squad went to Tokyo, the middle and long distance track team bought um, a load of our of the calf cuffs for the recovery of the athletes. They'd use them warm as they transitioned from the warm up area to the start line. Then they'd use them frozen so they could start the recovery process immediately. Um, and Richard, my um, my co-founder, we we sat down and we we tried to trace back how did that happen. <laughs> like, where did this come from <laughs> and it was amazing but it all started from a guy called Gareth Kilshaw who we were introduced to during COVID um, who was an ultra marathon runner and was decided the during COVID the RNLI hit massive funding issues and they were having problems so he decided to run a stupid distance, 100 miles, wherever, there and back, to raise yeah. money for RNLI. And a mutual friend said, oh, you should speak to him. He's, yeah, just see if he can help. So we helped. We gave him some early kit to use um, and then pushed out his uh, camp, his, what he was doing on, on some of our channels and websites and, and took his, it multiplied his fund, what he raised by, I think, about tenfold over his predictions, which was great. And we, he was using our stuff and we were getting feedback and he helped with the development. And then he introduced us to someone and we had a conversation with them and they introduced us to someone. And then the next thing, you know, we're having a conversation with the physio as they're on the pre-Olympic training camp in America. And that's where it is. But if you trace it back over six to eight months, um, that, that's literally how it came to be by speaking to someone to speak to someone. And it, it grew and grew. And so you never know who's around the corner. You never know who's going to help, what's going to happen. It can come from the most unlikely of people and the most unlikely of scenarios in places. Mm. Mm. 
I loved what Manchester United said to you when when they seen your product. And, and obviously, we're talking about Man United here, one of the biggest football clubs in the world. Uh, like them or loathe them, that's a fact. And um, uh, you know, it's it's. Um, just, just give us a, just give us that that high level that you you said to me offline, Cameron. What what Manchester United loved about Rixo? Yeah, so um, when we were introduced to them and went to speak, um, Richard was the and he delivered it. And he, to paraphrase it, he essentially was saying, so "This is the Rixo recovery cuffs. This is um, they provide targeted ice, targeted heat, and compression, uh, which we can." guarantee within a certain range for optimum recovery and so then went into a bit of depth but at the end they said the one thing that they loved the most about it was it does three things and it does them well and that's and i think because they are i mean they're massive and they will have spoken to and met loads of people um but they were saying it does like products will do this and it'll do that and we can do this and it can be adapted to do this and this and this but they might be interested in one or two components of what it's output whereas with ours, it's the beauty is in its simplicity of design, and it. it yes, a, a mentor of mine told me once that yeah, it, it it takes a lot of hard work to make something simple, um, and it's true. I mean, it's, we're in design iteration number ten, I think. We're not at Dyson's level yet, but um, it's <laughs> taken a lot of time to refine and hone and improve. Sure, but it does sure. three things, and it does it well, and we have the science. Uh, we've had studies done through Liverpool John Moore University as well as the absolute mass amounts of data out there on the use of and benefits of ice, heat and compression when looking at athletic recovery and injury management. Mm. Amazing. Thank you. So couple of questions before we wrap up i know you i know you've got a, a, t- a tight uh, t- timeline on this on on today so um where is the future for Cameron Johnston and Rixo? Where, 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 what, what do you see over the next few years for yourself and for the business? Yeah, so we're in this really pivotal point in the company where we're experiencing quite rapid growth and we have some very interesting conversations with the US, um, which is amazing um, and whilst all the legal stuff's getting sorted out. Um, but that for us is a is a game changer um, and is amazing. And so the business is growing in strength within the UK. And it's, it's a funny one because um, Richard, uh, my business partner, and as well, like the marketing people that we work with, they like it's it's shouting from the rooftops about what we're doing whereas i quite like being the unsung hero product <laughs> that's in the background um but it's yeah we're working a lot with professional sports um but the growth of rixo within the uk we've got new products coming up as i mentioned the anchor one is in development which i'm excited about um as well as we're looking at the design of the hip and the shoulder with two orthopedic surgeons um which will be amazing. Um, and then looking to expand the brand into the US and into the medical space, um, which, yeah, is, is just going, it's amazing. It's an opportunity that's taken a while to, to grow, but it's it's been really great. So that's uh, incredible. Thank you so much, Cameron. And um, how can people get hold of um, Rixo? How, where can they find you? Yeah, so... I just say there, Rixo is R I I X O, and it's a phonetic take. Um, it literally means recovery. Um, it was uh, we were working with a local tribe in South Sudan, and I was just speaking with um, a chap who was working alongside, and I asked him some bizarre questions. How do you, <laughs> such as what? How does recovery? What is recovery in uh, like your native language? And so it literally means recovery. Um, it's a bit of a fanatic take, but rixo.com um, is our website. Um, and you can find us on there. It's got all of our products, all of our contact details. Um, and that's where we are at the moment. And we're exploring other avenues um, on where the goods can be purchased. We're also available if you're um, in the Manchester area, at the Running Bear uh, running shop. Um, you can find our stuff in in there, and that's where we're stocked. Well, Today's story uh, 
I'm glad you shared it with us, Cameron. I'm glad you were here to share it with us. And um, I wish you all the best. And um, I hope to get up to Edinburgh and um, grab a coffee with you sometime. Take care. All the best. Yeah, Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and thank you for having me. And yeah, I'd love to. We'll, um, we'll grab a coffee. I think you'll agree that was quite a story. Join me again for next week's episode of Ian Beaton's So What's Your Story? If you enjoyed this episode, it meant something to you, or maybe you think a friend or a loved one might like to listen to it too, go ahead and share it with them. Remember, if you have a story you'd like to share, or perhaps you know someone who does, I invite you to join me on my podcast. I can be contacted by email, web, or social. Thank you. You've just listened to So What's Your Story?